for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, we head to Michigan, where President Joe Biden took 81% of the votes in Tuesday's Democratic primary. But more than 100,000 people opted for uncommitted, seen as a protest against the White House's stance on the war in Gaza, in a state with the biggest Arab-American population in the country. In one of the few certified swing states in the upcoming November election, what impact could that backlash against Biden have on his chances in Michigan and overall. He is best known for his biting political satire, but on Monday, comedian, author, and Daily Show host John Stewart closed out the show with a very heartfelt, touching, and personal story about the death of his dog, Dipper. It's resonated with people right across the continent, and we look into the process of grieving the loss of a pet and hear from someone who helps those working through that kind of loss. And on this Leap Day Eve, we look back at probably the biggest political event in Canadian history on February 29th. It was 40 years ago tomorrow, 1984, when the term walk in the snow became synonymous with any politician heading for the exits, as then Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau announced that he was leaving politics. But just how spontaneous was it really? And is there any possibility that his son may follow in those snowy footsteps in 2024? And we look into the history of February 29th, how it came to be, and why the Romans decided that February was the right month to stick it into, and discover what it's like to be a leap day baby with someone who celebrates a birthday on that rarest of birthdays. Again, we do mark a bit of a rarity tomorrow, needless to say, as far as our calendar goes. 2024 is a leap year. I'm sure you're well aware of this by now. Uh, So we get a 29th of February. This happens nearly, but not every four years. Uh, The Gregorian calendar, which is used in most countries in the world, uh, will get an extra day tomorrow. Uh, But why? Where did it originate? And if you pull the threads on the history of leap year, you wind up going as far back as Roman Emperor Julius Caesar and the cold, hard reality that it takes the Earth more than 365 days to revolve around the sun. And it can wreak havoc on a calendar if left unchecked. But why did it end up in February? Why do we rarely but occasionally skip a leap year? The next time that's going to happen is 76 years from now in 2100. Alexander Boxer knows this stuff inside out. He's a data scientist. His book is called A Scheme of Heaven, The History of Astrology and the Search for Our Destiny in Data. And he joins me now as we get set to mark a February 29th. Alexander, thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. I saw you describe February 29th as an awkward calendar hack, and I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it because I've never seen it put that way. Uh, Why is that? Well, there's no question that we have a strange calendar, and it's simply, how do you feel about having a strange calendar? I I love our calendar, Mm -hmm. and I love February 29th because it is sort of this weird hack or or a seam that if you start pulling the thread, tells this incredible story of, of how we got here. And a story of how we measure time, a story of how different civilizations have all built upon each other to, to, to build the calendar that we have. But the simple answer is we have this strange thing called leap year because the Earth's orbit around the sun does not fall into a perfect number of even days. We don't have a nice 365-day year. It's 365 and a little bit extra. And that little bit extra, there's a long story to it, but that little bit extra is why we have leap day. Right. And this is just an attempt to try to make sure that that doesn't spiral out of control over time. Right. Right. And it it certainly has in the past. And so we don't have to imagine too much what it would be like to not have a leap day. Many calendars in the past 
most famously, the Egyptian calendar had a very nice 365 days. And astronomers, both in ancient times and also even more recent times in the scientific revolution, still use that calendar because it's very easy to know how many days went from one observation to the next. Or if you wanted to know how long it had been from something you did last year to this year, it's easy to figure it out. You don't have to ask yourself or scratch your head how many leap years came in between. But the downside to that was that we have a leap year approximately once every four years. That's because the excess is about a quarter of a day, a little bit less. We can talk about that. That means that every four years, the calendar is going to slip by basically a day. If you live to 80 years, typical human lifespan, you would see certain holidays already slip by 20 days. So very quickly, winter holidays start happening in the fall, then the summer, then the spring. Everything gets out of whack. You mentioned earlier about pulling the threads on the history of, of leap year, and you start to see some familiar names, Julius Caesar, Pope Gregory. There's Some names start to pop up. You're like, how, do, how are they involved in all this? Right. So I don't know. Uh, certainly Julius Caesar is a more familiar name than, than Pope, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth. Yes. They're, uh, they're both important characters, but... I think it's rare in the history of science that you can really attribute a major change to one person. But in this case, we can. Julius Caesar is the main character of this story. He took the uh, ancient Roman calendar, which I think is uh, got to win the award for worst calendar, uh, successful in almost none of the things it tried to do. Uh, just an absolutely mind-bendingly bad, complicated calendar. And he said, we need to do something better. He chose the system that we basically have today of uh, the months that we know with the lengths of days that we know, January, February, March, April, May, and a leap year every four years. Now, as your savvy listeners will know, because of what happened in the Renaissance, we do not have a leap year exactly every four years. We have to throw a couple of them out. But Essentially, the calendar we have today is the calendar that was invented by Julius Caesar. And then it's and then it's refined, right? It's somewhat refined. Correct. So think about it. We started with what we call the Egyptian calendar, which was 365 days. Uh, Egyptians were savvy astronomers. The Greeks in Alexandria living in Egypt were savvy astronomers. They knew that that was not the length of the tropical year, the solar year. So what do we mean? We mean is you could actually do this. If you sat out in your backyard every day and measured how high the sun was every day when it passed due south, you'd be take that measurement and say, how many days does it take to get to the same elevation? You realize it wasn't quite 365 days. 365, uh, about a quarter. It's actually more like 365.242. Now, you take Julius Caesar's calendar, because it had one leap year every four years, uh, that meant that the average year was 365 and a quarter days. Mm -hmm. Pretty good. It turns out that that's about 11 minutes too long. 11 minutes. Pretty good. Pretty good. But it adds uh, up. It adds up. It adds time. up. Yeah. And so after about 1,500 years, people realized that this calendar was, was starting to get out of alignment again. In particular, it was throwing a lot of trouble for the computation of Easter. This became a topic of much dispute. Finally, you know, calendars are, are fundamentally political. You needed somebody to say, all right, the astronomers know what's going on, but we need a calendar. And that was Pope Gregory the Thirteenth in 1582, changed the calendar once again. 
So remember, I said that the, the Julian calendar, the average year is about 11 minutes too long. Well, okay, how do we make the average year shorter? Well, instead of having one leap year every four, every four years, or in other words, instead of having 100 leap years every 400 years, they said it would be much better if we had 97 leap years every 400 years. So let's right. let's choose three leap years and throw them out. Let's make them not leap years. And that is the that is the calendar we currently have. It is still too long. It's still too long by about 30 seconds. So just just how did it end up in February? Why did we decide to tack on an every an extra day in February? Again, we can uh, we can thank the Romans. We can thank Julius <laughs> Caesar. Uh, they threw it into February because for them February was sort of a rump month. Their calendar, their original calendar started in March, which is why if you think about it, December is for them the 10th month. In the right, Deca, of course, yeah. And not the 12th month. They also had a new year in January too, but but the original calendar started in, in March. February was always sort of a rump month. It was also to the ancient Romans an unlucky month. Romans were extremely superstitious about, well, pretty much everything, but oddly enough, evenly enough, they hated even numbers. Even numbers were supremely unlucky. So uh, all of the months had odd numbers, but they wanted the year to have an odd number of days too. So they said, okay, well, we can't do that with all odd numbers. So February was the unlucky month. They had 28 days. What I think is interesting though, is that the original leap day was not February 29th, right. but what would be February 24th. Alexander Boxer is a data scientist and author of A Scheme of Heaven, The History of Astrology and the Search for Our Destiny in Data. We're talking about leap year or leap day, which comes up, of course, tomorrow, the 29th of February, every four years to make up for uh, a bit of an imperfection in our calendar in that um, this uh, takes the Earth longer than 365 days to orbit the Earth. So we try to make up for that by adding an extra day every four years so that the whole calendar doesn't get out of whack, or at least the way the calendar reflects the seasons we're in or the times we're in doesn't get all out of whack. Um, Alexander, there are I guess there are alternative calendars that have been proposed. We can't even agree on when and on not turning, you know, not changing the clocks back and forth each year. So I don't know how we would ever agree on a new calendar. But there are talks of there is sort of things, alternative calendars. A permanent calendar, I think, was the one that I'd seen mentioned. Yeah. So these calendars are fascinating. Of course, you don't have to have speculative calendars either. There's, of course, liturgical calendars, the Jewish liturgical calendar, the Islamic calendar, these calendars are used every day just fine. Right. Now, should we change our civil calendar? I would, of course, argue that we should not. Again, a calendar can do several things well, but you can't do all of them at the same time, and you have to make a choice based on your priority. So people talk about these permanent calendars. Uh, they're referring to a series of calendars that have been proposed that would have the same day of the month always happen on the same year. Right. So if your birthday was on a Tuesday, it'll be forever on a Tuesday. Right. Now, this calendar still requires leap days. Now, they are leap. They would, they would insert an entire leap week to make sure that the, the count of weeks is the same. So in a sense, is your goal to not have confusing leap years and have to scratch your head about it, whether there was a leap week in that year or not? No, it doesn't. It doesn't succeed on that point. It would be the same sort of confusion of, gosh, I have to know if this is a leap year or not a leap year. So if you were an astronomer and cared about a nice continuous count of days, you would say, well, this calendar is no better than, than what we have. Now, I also think it's interesting that you learn so much about a society by its calendar. We, we have this, this calendar, which is the product of, of all this history. And you look at the, the permanent calendar. The permanent calendar, the best I can tell, is motivated by 
accountant. Right. We just want to have a an easy billing cycle. And I, and I think it says something a little bit sad about one society if you arrange the calendar entirely based on corporate HR departments. Yeah, the Esperanto you know, of calendars. No offense to Esperanto. <laughs> you know, maybe you know if your birthday's on a Wednesday, maybe I'd like it to be on a Thursday next year. Why, yeah. why does my birthday always have to be on a Wednesday? And of course, Halloween would be right out because there are no, there's no October 31st. You know, uh, I guess we could move a Halloween to the to the 30th, but. And, and no Friday the 13th either. But that would go away, right? Ostensibly. That would go away. Um, and yes, well, unless there was a month, I guess I'd have to check, maybe in one of their months, right. it would always be Friday the 13th. I, I think what's so interesting about the, the 29th of February is that it makes us reflect on something that I don't think we often reflect on, and that's the calendar that we use. It's kind of a primordial part of our lives. We deal with it every single day. It dictates so much of how we live our lives in many ways, paying bills, getting paid, going away, birthdays, anniversaries, etc. But we don't often give it much thought. And here it is is, you know, more than 2000 years old at this point, and we're still abiding by it or about 2000 years old. Again, it's one reason I love leap days. I love February 29th because it's an opportunity exactly as you say, we get to think about it and say, how did this happen? And it's really an incredible story in the history of science and it really unravels all of it. You get Egyptians, Romans, Greeks, uh, the, the, the medieval world, the Catholic church, Easter, modern astronomical computations, it's all there if you are willing to pull the thread on February 29th. Yeah. And I just can't imagine we would ever agree upon uh, upon building one today if we had to, which makes it even all the more incredible. Right. You'd probably need a pretty tyrannical regime. Uh, you know, you'd probably need a dictator for life, a bit like Julius Caesar, yeah. to, to have a, a true new civil calendar. And Alexander, sure. <laughs> thanks so much for your time and your insight on this. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pretty eclectic mix of voices, right? We had Dinah Shore into the break, uh, then Jaw Rule out of the break, Tony Robbins, Dennis Farina. You can only imagine what they all have in common. They were all born on February the 29th. That's right. Jaw Rule, Tony Robbins, Dennis Farina, the late actor, and of course, Dinah Shore. Um, for those celebrating their birthdays on the 29th, it's of course considered the rarest birthday a person can have. That kind of goes without saying. Your chances of being born on the 29th of February apparently are roughly 1 in 1,461. So it is odd. So I saw an estimate somewhere that there are approximately 5 million people worldwide born on February the 29th. So not entirely uncommon, but certainly a rarity. I don't think I've ever met anyone or spent a lot of time with anyone who was born on February the 29th. Um, and yet, you know, leap day babies usually celebrate their birthdays, I guess, on February 28th or March the 1st. Their identifications and important documents continue to list February 29th as their birth date. Um, there's a cruise going on I was reading about today, this cruise that a, a gentleman from uh, from Saskatchewan is on, uh, that is all leap year or leap day babies or leap day uh, people on, on the same cruise together for a big birthday bash in the Bahamas. We wanted to know what is it like to grow up? with your birthday on February 29th. And joining me is one of them, Renee Nicole Gray. She's a fashion historian and a Leap Day baby. Renee, thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is, I mean, again, this this is um, one of those things, obviously. I, I'm going to try not to ask you all the, the bad questions you get asked all the time. But I was surprised to learn that when you were born, your mom was given, given the option of sort of saying, well, you could, you could choose February 28th or March the 1st if you want, but she didn't. Yeah, apparently that happens to a lot of women because they just think, well, maybe it's going to be too hard for them to have this birthday and their life will be easier if you just say it's the 28th instead. 
Yeah. And I guess, I mean, the way you write about it, uh, perhaps not for the early years, but but for most of your life, you've always been really thankful that your mom made that choice. I have been. And I feel like it almost subconsciously paved this creative path for my life because I always felt so different and it made me want to go into the arts and, and just kind of express myself because you're instantly set apart from everyone else in the world at that point. Yeah. And you feel you feel it already. <laughs> you do, right? I mean, it must be interesting. Uh, I didn't go to school, as far as I know, with anyone who was born on February the 29th. But, I mean, you write about it, that it was difficult when you're young because you're trying to sort of fit in when you're a kid. And birthdays are such a big deal. And, and all of a sudden, you have this different birthday. Yeah, and I never got the cupcake in school. Right, that was and a sad, so... <laughs> that was a sad part <laughs> because of it. In, in elementary school, they make the list of everyone's birthday for the month, and I was always left off accidentally, I'm sure, but you know, it wasn't there, and I didn't get the birthday cupcake, and so my mom would have to call and say, "You didn't give her her cupcake," and then you know, <laughs> always it came on March first, and here's we're sorry. <laughs> Or sorry. Yeah, I, I guess the and that part. What about just with the other kids and so on? Because kids could be kids can be mean, right? Yeah, you get made fun of a little bit or, you know, on, on your fake birthday, I guess you could call it, which is you choose between the 28th or March 1st, really. So some Leap Day babies are strict Februarians where we only celebrate the 28th and some people are only March 1st and some people do both. But I always did the 28th um, right. because I felt like I was born in February. So I want to celebrate in February. I don't think um, I'd, ever, I'd ever heard the term Februarian before. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but they did make fun of me a little bit on my fake birthday. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, as you as you get older, though, it must be such an interesting um, topic of conversation, even when you're a teen and when you get to university and so on. I mean, it must be really something. It's something to talk about, right? It is, and you know, I've had a guy once hit on me in a bar by telling me I was born on leap day, <laughs> and I said. <laughs> I can't say what I said on the radio, but I said, show me your ID. I don't believe you. <laughs> and? <laughs> did not go well for him. He was no. not born on leap day. <laughs> uh, but did you show him, show him your ID as well? Yeah. And I think he was shocked because I'm sure he's tried that a million times on other women, you know? <laughs> Jeez. Oh, wow. Well, are there, are there hassles when it comes? I mean, I have a name with an apostrophe in it and a hyphen in the family name, and I get run into all kinds of trouble online when I'm trying to register for stuff and so on. Is February 29th difficult when it comes to just the automated world we live in now? It is. Um, driver's licenses sometimes don't pick up the 29th. So I had a license be um, good for nine years because it was supposed <laughs> to expire after five, I think. And, and they just put it for nine years. And um, also when you're doing entering your birthday on websites where you have that scroll thing, you know, you can't put in February 28th until you put in 19 whatever when you're born. Right. You have to do the year first or else it just shoots you back to like, you know, the date and it makes right. you put 28th. So that, that yeah. can run into issues as well. What about some of the hidden yep. benefits then of having having a leap day birthday? Um, like I said, I think it's really exciting and you feel very special and just different. Um it's exciting to wait four years to have a real birthday on the calendar. And you kind of just look at it the whole month in disbelief. Like it's here and I've been waiting four years. What do I do? Like you almost feel like you can't ever do anything special enough to live up to the day because it's so rare, you know? Yeah. You mentioned that as a kid, that was one of the hardest parts was that there were years, of course, where your birthday wasn't on that calendar. And that could be confusing when you're, when you're young. It is confusing to kids. And I know that they make kids books now about being born on leap day to kind of help explain it to them. So it's yeah. interesting. 
Are you surprised that there are parents who sort of have a lot of trepidation about having a kid on on on, on the 29th that they try to sort of, you know, that they, they try to avoid it just because they think it's going to be going to be an issue for their child? I probably, yeah, I think there are people that would say no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, for me, like I said, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I think it's such a cool birthday and it's always a great topic of conversation people just go oh my god so you're three that's all you hear is you're three years old it doesn't matter how old you are really I'm having my 10th real birthday right now so it's like nope I'm not three you can do the math but yeah I get it and and you kind of have to laugh and like fake laugh at it because you've heard it a million times in your life right I was like, gonna, ah. I wanted to know, I guess, because you you've written about this. I wanted to know what are, what are the questions that are the the most annoying for someone born on the 29th? So what? Yeah, that one. What are you three? Yeah, um, always three. Right. It's always three. Oh, always three. Uh, when do you want when do you celebrate or they say you're not allowed to celebrate until March 1st because you're not actually older yet? Well, I guess I don't know. <laughs> That's well, one of those like, existential questions, isn't it? <laughs> I, I guess there's a little millisecond there, maybe, and I kind of go, "Oop, there's my second, and it drifts away every oh, good. four years. So <laughs> celebrate yeah. that one second in between. Well, I mean, I have to say, Lordy, 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 Lordy look who's ten is better uh, than the alternative with the cards I was oh, getting yeah, a, a, a decade ago. Yeah, it's oh, a big one this year for me. So I'm it like, is. Ooh, it's it's the biggest one, and I, I, I actually, you don't have a milestone birthday like this very often. I think the next one I'll be 60. So wow, of course, of course. I hadn't yeah. even thought of that. Yeah. I, I guess that's one of the, I mean, it doesn't change. Well, how would you, how would you know if your birthday is on the 29th and, and, and you don't have any other birthday, but it mustn't change the way. I wonder if it changes the way you think about age. A little bit. I think I, I, well, I appreciate birthdays a lot more. I would say being, this is only my 10th one of my whole entire life. Right. But it it does sort of make you feel a little younger and you, you think I'm young at heart or I'm forever young, I guess, to be yeah. a little cheesy, you know. Well, it's a good I mean, there's many a song title called Forever Young. <laughs> so so I mean, tomorrow's the big day. What do you have planned? I know you just said that almost nothing can live up to the sort of anticipation uh, yeah. of, of a of a birthday every four years. It's kind of like, you know, the Olympics. <laughs> but what um what do you have planned? We're just having a really special party at my house, low key, and all of my favorite things. Um, the last one we went to Paris, so I feel like that it, nothing can live up to that one. But um, it's going to be special and just kind of intimate, and yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, well. That's listen, plan. let me let me be one of the first to wish you a very very happy birthday, Renee. Thank you so much. Thank you. So here's an interesting question for you. Are you, is tomorrow, since it's an extra day in the year, uh, the 366th day of 2024, or it, not yet, but you know what I mean, there will be 366 days, are you working tomorrow for free? Think about it. If normally your, your annual salary covers 365, if you add that extra day, February 29th, is it a freebie for your employer? Here's Brittany Taylor. She's uh, an employment lawyer talking about this. This is obviously not the first time we've had a leap year, but I feel like this is one of the first times that we've seen a lot of interest around this topic and the question of, am I working for free on the 29th? So are you? Well, it all depends. Rafael Gomez is a professor and director of the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. Rafael, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Ben. Tell me a bit about, she's right. I don't think I'd ever seen this discussed in no. the context yeah. of a leap year before. And all of a sudden, this year we are. Why, why, why do you think, is that just the media that jumping on something? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, it, it causes, I think the deeper question is, yeah, why are we talking about this? Um, I, yeah. I think if you center in on, on yeah, so I guess that's why you had me on. So, um, <laughs> I, think, I think if you cent, if you center on the question of who this affects, you actually mentioned it, you bracketed a salaried employee. If you're an hourly or a daily wage earner, this isn't an issue, right? It's, it's an extra day and you'll be paid for that day or for the hours worked on that day. So this is really occurring amongst people whose work is kind of more guaranteed, if you will, during the year. We tend to think of salaried employees as being kind of um, more privileged. You know, they tend to have better job security than an hourly or wage earner, better benefits, pensions, and these sorts of things. And yet they're the ones that seemingly are kind of raising these questions. Obviously, that employment lawyer is fielding calls. You know, I don't think this is an issue that's been, quote unquote, drummed up by media. I think the media is responding to signals that this is out there in the zeitgeist. Yeah, I wonder what's changed. I, I mean, I, I I get that someone who works, you know, gets paid an annual salary. It's just a, it's just an interesting question. You think you're right? There is right. an extra day this year. Am I getting paid for it? And the answer is, well, no, probably not. No, yeah, I, and so I think if you go back, I think this is a consequence of a number of forces, right? And and I think the most proximate causes are, are what's basically we've lived with for the last few years. Think about the pandemic. And think about who was called essential during the pandemic. Well, actually, those were the workers that traditionally we didn't think had such great jobs. You know, cashiers, people working in the warehouses, delivery workers. They were certainly paid for every day they worked and every hour. And we also attached a name to those workers. Essential. They were called essential. Now, that's fine. And I think that was that was probably right. It was correct. But you, you know what category you've created by default? an unessential worker. And guess who was unessential then? People on salaries who actually couldn't go to work. Their, their offices were shuttered. Uh, I bet your office, you probably had to do all your, your recording from home studios and such. So we created kind of a category, uh, inadvertently perhaps, of, of these unessential salaried workers who then, when the lights were turned back on, said, let's get back to work. Nothing was ever kind of, I think, quite set back in the way it was. I think this has lingered in people's mind. Was my work that unessential that you could turn it off and on? And there were people that, far worse, they had their jobs completely shut, right? Think about theater, actors, their whole professions right. were done. So I think if we've returned back, and this is now, you know, we're two years on from perhaps the end of most of those lockdowns and restrictions, but I think psychologically, we haven't dealt with it. So now the first leap year after the pandemic, because 2020, February was the last one, why this issue right. has popped up. So that caused me to think because there was like nothing else has changed so much as there are a few lingering forces. Like actually, we have more salaried workers today than we had wage earners, say, 30 years ago. But that wouldn't explain this sort of pop up in the interest right now. I think it really links to things that happened during the pandemic. The other thing, of course, is the cost of living. Things are way more expensive right. now than four years ago. So my every day of pay kind of matters more now. Yeah. Uh, someone someone just texted in to point out quite correctly that if you pay rent, you're getting an extra day of rent for free. So, I mean, I well, wonder when you look true. at you look at it is true. It is true. I guess so far. Yeah. But, you know, uh, if you look at this from the employer's perspective, then I mean, I think it all comes out in the wash, right? In, in the long run, mm -hmm. the, the one day is not such mm -hmm. a big deal. But if you look at it from the employer's perspective, are, are they are they getting are, do, are they getting a free day? I guess I guess perhaps they are. Well, well, yeah, I mean, if you focus, again, if we focus on the narrow question, like, is, is the issue really about this day? 
or is it about something right. deeper? Like, are we are we getting our fair compensation? And compensation, or uh, here's broadly defined, or in air quotes, how are we being compensated by our employers? Are we being treated fairly? Have we have we really recovered from what happened during the pandemic? And is my employer now forcing me to come? You know, after telling me to be at home, then forcing me to come back for five days a week. This is all very, you know, I think uh, caused a lot of disruption in people's lives. And if if an employer isn't cognizant of those issues, then it'll pop up in this very, you know, particular instance that employees will be kind of haranguing or demanding. And you're right, in the wash, it's not huge, but it's a symbolic issue that probably speaks to deeper concerns in some employment um, yeah, context. a little more tension, a little more tension in That's 2024 right. on leap year between That's employer right. and employee than there was back in 2020. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I was I was watching a, a report earlier today that did suggest that for those who are paid minimum wage, if you work mm-hmm. an extra day and that dips you below mm-hmm. your minimum wage average for the year, there could be you could actually go seek compensation for it. I don't know if it's worth it, but you could. Um, I see. Right. Because the, the, yeah. the salary itself is predicated on a set number of hours. Now you're working more hours, which then drops. Right. you. Yeah. I mean, and again, we may think that doesn't matter. But if someone, again, dealing with the cost of living crisis and who's earning right at that razor's edge, then it doesn't matter. It is materially important to you now that costs have gone up 30 percent. You know, that's how high inflation has been over these last few years. We're literally paying 30 percent more than we did in 2020 for essential goods. Food, housing. Yeah. So I, I don't no, what, think this is yeah. uh, a kind of a trivial matter, actually. No matter. No wonder we're a little less gen- generous with this yeah. free day. That's or this free day coming up tomorrow. Yeah. Raphael, thank you so much for your insight on this. It was interesting. I hadn't really thought of it as being a much more profound industrial relations issue than simply sort of people talking about the novelty of it. So there you have it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. And imagine that forty years ago tomorrow. Perhaps the most significant political event ever on a leap day in this country, February 29th, 1984, when the term walk in the snow became part of our political lexicon, synonymous with any politician heading for the exits. Here is then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau explaining his decision to permanently retire from politics on February 29th, 1984. I, I went to judo, my boys. And, uh, very good judo lesson because uh, nobody was there because of the storm so we had to teach it all to ourselves and i went home discussed with the boys put them to bed walked till midnight in the storm interesting eh? and then i went home and took a sauna for even an hour and a half it was all clear i was gonna leave but i went to sleep just in case I'd changed my mind overnight, and I didn't. I woke up. It was great. Use the old cliche, this is the first day of the rest of my life. There he is. Uh, then Prime Minister, Pierre, the late Pierre Elliott Trudeau, on February 29th, 1984, explaining why he had made the decision to resign in the famous walk in the snow, which if you believe that story word for word, would have been happening exactly 40 years ago now. He said he was walking until midnight. It's now 11.06 p.m. in uh, in Ottawa. There was no, There's no snow there now. So if you're thinking about uh, his son, he mentions his boys. One of them, of course, is now Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. If you're thinking that uh, that uh, another uh, another Trudeau will be taking a walk in the snow, well, there's no snow. So that right, right there, the parallels are out. But we will be talking about that in just a bit. I mean, of course, what happened on 40 years ago tomorrow 
sort of wound up a remarkable run in Canadian politics. Pierre Trudeau served as prime minister for 15 years and 164 days between 1968 and 1984. That is the third longest in history behind King and Macdonald. He won three majorities, served in one minority government, uh, lost an election, of course, famously to Joe Clark back in 1979, then came back and won again. Uh, he was those, I mean, he, his, the idea that he was sort of a rebel, kind of a you know, kind of a counterculture figure in uh, the '60s and the '70s. We don't have to go into the whole history of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Most of you out there will, will will know it and have your opinions about it already. But the idea that somehow everything he did was spontaneous was also a bit of a myth. Uh, you know, the famous pirouette in front of uh, Princess Margaret in 1977 at Buckingham Palace. Apparently that was, I mean, he knew where the cameras were. The decision to retire on um, on February 29th, maybe not as, as spontaneous as you might imagine. He did have a flair for the dramatic. Someone who knows all about this is Raymond Blake. He's a professor in the Department of History at the University of Regina. He's a fellow at the Royal Society of Canada. And he's the author of an upcoming book called Canada's Prime Ministers and the Shaping of a National Identity. Of course, Pierre Elliott Trudeau did a lot on that front as well. Raymond, thanks for your time tonight. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, here, I, I mean, it's hard to think that 40 years ago, it, I can't believe it's been 40 years since that infamous walk in the snow, but here we are. What a very big day, perhaps the biggest day, the biggest leap day in Canadian political history was 40 years ago tomorrow. Well, you know, it was. And, you know, as you had already said, you, Mr. Trudeau did very little that uh, that we sort of expected, but yet he had planned so many things. And, and you know, it's so fitting for him to retire, you know, uh, on a day that comes around once every four years. Yeah. And, and you, you sort of posit that this probably wasn't, or, or I think the, the, the evidence uh, points to it, that this wasn't as spontaneous as he liked. The whole idea of walking in the snow, maybe that was entirely true, but the whole idea that that's what he came up with his, his decision was probably uh, a little bit of a stretch. Well, I, I think absolutely. But, you know, he's, he sounds in that little clip that you played there, he sounds so convincing. And and it, it really plays in into the mystery, the mystique of the man. And he had said when he came, you know, or even he was resurrected in 1980. He had resigned in um, 1979 after he lost to Mr. Clark, drove off in his fancy Mercedes sports car and, you know, waved goodbye and said to the press, you won't have me to kick around anymore. And lo and behold, <laughs> you know, Joe Clark's government falls and the liberals are over the leader. And what do they do? They call on Pierre Trudeau yet again. And he comes back yeah. and doesn't win a seat, you know, where you are, where I am, uh, east of Man west of Manitoba, but he wins a majority, you know, resurrected from the dead. And, um, and, and, and this, is this is sort of really amazing. And he comes back and he says, in his first opening remark after winning the, the, the May election, he says, welcome to the 80s. And Pierre Trudeau's going to guide Canada for another few years. He does say at the time in that campaign that, you know, right. I won't be around. This is my last term. I'm going. And as you noted, it really wasn't spontaneous because he had talked to the uh, Liberal Party president, Iona Campanola, just a few days earlier and said, you know, I'm thinking about retiring. So this was on his mind. And, of course, the polls were telling him Canadians really didn't want him around anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, if there's any parallels between Pierre, between dad and son, it's that it's the moment in time as we roll into a February 29th uh, that the polling isn't so good. We'll talk about that in a second. He had quite a consequential final four years, though, didn't he? He did indeed. You know, uh, you know, he you know now is the third longest serving Canadian prime minister, but more than that, he was a pivotal prime minister. You know, he really made a difference to the country. If he had gone in 1979, most of his vision that he had when he came in 1968, you know, would not have been fulfilled. And we talk, of course, particularly of the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms and patriation of the Canadian Constitution, which Canadian prime ministers have been trying to do since really the 1920s. Yeah, and the National Energy Program for listeners out west. They may remember that from 1980 as well. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, it's interesting that, you know, the students that I teach, you know, they were all born, uh, even when Pierre Trudeau was, was, was dying. And, um, and and yet they, they know from their parents, I mean, in Saskatchewan, in the west, you know, they know from their parents the evil that Mr. Trudeau did when he told the farmers, why should I sell your wheat, the National Energy Program. Uh, you know, the problems that he encountered with Premier Blakeney in Saskatchewan with telecommunications. So not exactly a well-loved individual in Western Canada. No, certainly not. I mean, that's an interesting thing about his legacy, too, is just the polari- how polarizing his legacy can be. Because, of course, growing up in Montreal, I, you know, people I grew up with, were, he, was, he was kind of a legend, right? And then I, as a young kid, I went out and lived out west for a while in Edmonton, went to grade school out there. And you didn't talk about Pierre Trudeau in Edmonton in 1980, ever. That was that was sort of what I had come to, and, and you know there were certainly no tears uh, when he decided to resign. Uh, you know, forty years ago tomorrow. Well, you know that that is absolutely true, and it may be in in part, you know, because the charter is so important to Canadians and so essential to our sense of identity and who we are. But also, of course, you know, his son became, um, you know, prime minister or is prime minister. You know, he married a you know very young uh, uh, woman at the time. I think they started dating when she was eighteen or nineteen. He was late forties, and 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 they married, and you know, almost a thirty-year age difference. Margaret stayed around, uh, was very much in in the media, and and as people said about Mr. Trudeau, unfortunately, one of the sons died uh, in in a skiing accident, but he had mm-hmm. two children. Born on Christmas Day, and the joke was around Canada that you know God Christ can only do it do it once, and Pierre Trudeau did yeah. it twice. Have two kids on on Christmas Day, so what a remarkable individual he he was outside of the political arena. Yeah, a flair for the dramatic. So, so, so your estimation, and I think this is pretty well documented. The whole idea of resigning on February 29th probably was not a not not something he just dreamt up on the evening of the 28th while slogging through snowy the snowy streets of the capital. It it, it certainly probably it was not, but you know it really did help to create this politician who was cut from a different a, a different mold. He was cut from a different cloth than any others, you know, whether it was Lester Pierce and the bold tie, whether it's John Diefenbaker, you know, later on, you know, John John Turner or Chan or, or Mulroney. Uh, he, he was certainly charismatic. He dated, you know, movie stars. Uh, he, he, he was, you know, independently wealthy. 
He didn't seem to hold respect for anything. You mentioned the pirouette. Uh, but, but everything was sort of very much planned to be a non-politician. Uh, but he, he certainly earned respect, even though many Canadians didn't like him very much. And they were certainly glad to see him go in his party, of course, in the election when Mulroney came in in September 1984, really was a referendum on Trudeau. And it didn't go well for the Liberals, as you know, in that election. It was clear to me that Mr. Trudeau was by far the best in the Liberal Party to lead that party. Uh, he's uh, very much head and shoulders above anyone else. It occurred to me uh, unlikely that he would want to step down in favor of someone perhaps uh, less talented. Uh, that was Brian Mulroney, then opposition leader uh, for the Conservatives back in 1984, reacting to news that Pierre Trudeau had announced his resignation 40, year go, 40 years ago tomorrow on February 29th, 1984, perhaps the most uh, the most famous political event on a leap day in Canadian history. Uh, Raymond Blake is a professor with the Department of History at the University of Regina. He's written a really interesting article in the conversation called 40 Years After His Famous Walk in the Snow, A Look Back at Pierre Trudeau's Resignation. Uh, Raymond, I was looking today at what the polling numbers were back in 1984 for Pierre Trudeau's Liberals, and it, they were strikingly similar to what uh, the polling numbers are right now. Now, there's a few different equations, there's a few different factors in, such as the Bloc Québécois, but still, it was the parallels between the walk in the snow of 1984 and the position the Liberal Party found themselves under a Trudeau Prime Minister is strangely similar to what we're seeing today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, you know, probably it's unfair in some ways to compare, you know, Justin to his, Justin to his father. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, very few politicians know when to leave. And in Canadian history, there's only been, a, you know, two or three examples of where a prime minister has resigned, passed the party to someone else, and that party then went on to, you know, to, to continue to win the next election and, and probably one or two after and and most prime ministers stay till they've worn out their welcome and, and they get turfed out rather than leaving on their on, on their own. And and so certainly Mr. Trudeau uh, Jr. finds himself in the same situation as you pointed out, his father. Uh, both of them now are very, very, were very low in the polls. Uh, both of them, uh, apparently within the party, people are saying you need to go for the good of the party. And uh, the decision, of course, rests with that individual. And I suspect, as you said, there'll be no walk in the snow tomorrow. But certainly, Mr. Trudeau, Justin must be thinking about, you know, can he win an election when the polls are really quite uh, supportive of uh, the conservatives? And it looks like Mr. Trudeau will find it very, very difficult to, to turn things around. Yeah. Brian Mulroney made an interesting point, I thought, back in 1984 about the quality of Trudeau, uh, Pierre Trudeau, as liberal leader and how he thought there wasn't really a replacement. Now, that could have just been politics. I I don't know whether Brian knew he was about to win 211 seats, which is still a record, I think. Um, But And the liberals were going to get shellacked in that next election in 1984. But it's an interesting point that he raises there because that that asked that issue has come up around, around Justin Trudeau as well. I mean, if not him, then who? No, absolutely. And, you know, you've got to wonder, you know, even when when Pierre Trudeau resigned because the numbers were poor in in the polls, is insiders were saying, 
And his polls were telling him, look, we're doing better in January than we were doing in the previous December. And, and you know, I think it's turned around here. I think we can win again. And, and so people close to uh, the leader sometimes, you know, will say, oh, we, we can win. And you have to wonder whether or not, you know, people within Justin's party are saying, you know, hey, it's going to get better. They're going to see through, you know, Mr. Polyev. And and they'll come back to us. They've done it, you know, in, in three elections, and they'll do it again. And, and whether or not then Mr. Trudeau believes that he can actually win, because he seems one of the things that's obvious about him, probably a bit like his father, he seems to value no opinion greater than his own. <laughs> and, um, and 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 so he may think he can win. He may think, hey, the Canadians love me. And uh, and for a politician to realize they don't, it must be rather disheartening. One would think. Uh, there's an age difference, too. I mean, keep in mind, uh, when Pierre Trudeau walked out the door, he was 65. And Justin Trudeau, I think, right now is, is 50, must be 52, 53. So there is that difference in wisdom and so on. I mean, at some point, I think Pierre Elliott Trudeau had, had decided that his that he had achieved what he wanted to achieve and he didn't feel like losing yet another election because he'd already lost one uh, just a few, you know, uh, in 1979. So I guess there are some differences there. I'd be very surprised. And I know this has been sort of driven just because of the parallels. I mean, and let's be frank, Justin Trudeau probably wouldn't be prime minister if he wasn't Trudeau, right? I mean, let's be frank about that. Um, But the the people drawing these parallels as we come up to this anniversary now of saying, well, you know, wouldn't it be be just so Trudeau-esque for him to walk out the door on the 29th as well? You know, I, I, he probably won't because it would be, you know, it would sort of minimize, uh, you know, any any sort of cachet with we, we, oh, you did what dad did. And, and I think it would be belittle him rather than sort of elevate him in any way. And because Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, you know, to his credit, has some done some very good policy initiatives, you know, whether pharma care, which is just coming in daycare, the carbon tax. I know certain parts of the country don't like it, but, you know, there, there's been a, a, a gender balance cabinet and a, and a variety of other things. But, you know, he hasn't changed the country in a way that his father did. You know, those prime ministers like Mr. Trudeau, just Pierre Trudeau, they don't come along very often. And, and even when they go, people still didn't vote for them, but they liked them. They respected them in a way because of the integrity, because of the intelligence, because of principle. And I, I don't think uh, Justin Trudeau has those attributes. I, I think there was a real dislike across the country for him. That's almost visceral, whereas people would say, I'm not going to vote for Pierre Trudeau. But yet there was some grudging respect for him, probably what Mr. Moroni captured in that quote that you played. Yeah. Well, Raymond, uh, I guess we'll all just kick back and see what happens tomorrow. I, 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 as you as you point out, I mean, it's 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 excessively unlikely that history will repeat itself, but it is fun to talk about. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Well, thank you, and uh, you have a great rest of the evening. You know, a few years ago, just sort of in the middle of the pandemic, my dad, their dog died, uh, Charlie. And it was, you know, my dad's, they've had many, many pets over the years. And this one really hit him hard. So it was through those eyes that I was watching Jon Stewart on Monday. And this clip went all over social media. Uh, 
give a very tearful and heartfelt uh, tribute and send off to his dog, uh, a dog called Dipper that they'd had for about uh, ten to twelve years, um, a uh, a brindle pit bull that they had adopted. He had been hit by a car and lost a leg. They brought him home, and it was so obvious that that Stuart, who let's be honest, I mean, he's best known for being a really cutting political satirist. And on the show on Monday, he just melted, right? And you could tell why that was, because I think all of us can identify, or many of us can identify with the grief and pain of losing a pet. And and certainly in the immediate aftermath, as it was a reminder, you know, he started this story talking about how they had came, how it came to be, how Dipper came to be their dog. And then he spoke about, about losing, about the dog passing away the day before. Dipper passed away yesterday. He was ready. He was tired. But I wasn't. And the family, we were all together. Thank goodness we were all with him. But boy, my wish for you is one day you find that dog, that one dog. It just is the best. John Stewart, uh, you know, needless to say, there's been a lot of reaction to what he said and a lot of an outpouring of sort of uh, shared sympathy with with what he's going through. And I thought about those out there who, you know, there's actually a whole system out there to help people cope with grief um, after you lose a pet. What are you supposed to do? Uh, and so on, not just when you lose a pet, but also uh, with through veterinary care and end of life and so on. And I was really curious as to what that looks like. What are the right ways to grieve a pet? Is there even a right way to grieve the loss of a pet? Sarah Bernardi is a veterinary social worker at the Ontario Veterinary College Health Sciences Centre at the University of Guelph, and she's with me now. Sarah, thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Ben. I guess just your reaction to that John Stewart video, because I think it spoke to, uh, I mean, regardless of your politics, I guess, in the U.S., but it spoke to a lot of us, right? I think all of us have suffered and, and grieved the loss uh, of a companion, and uh, it was certainly a touching moment. It was a, it was a really beautiful moment, and I think so relatable and, and such a raw moment. It was nice to see that, actually. Yeah. yeah, he's funny. The one line of his that really stood out to me, because I think this is sort of uh, how everyone experiences the loss of, of a pet is he was ready and I wasn't as he talks about his dog Dipper, right? Oh, yeah, that's so well said. And I feel like just a, a really, I mean, spot on statement, right? That's, I think, a lot of times how we feel. How does that play out then for you? And maybe perhaps explain what it is that you do, because you do, you are uh, in, in some senses, part of what you do is help those who are grieving a, the loss of a companion. Oh, yeah, totally. So, well, um, I guess just to kind of give you the the Cliff Notes version mm-hmm. a little bit. So I work full time at the uh, Ontario Vet College at the University of Guelph. And really, my job is very client facing in that um, I support the clients of OVC. So our, our pet parents, if you will, as they walk through treatment with their animals, their companion animals, and even in, in grief. So after they pass away, I also support them. So um, in, in a sense, uh, any, anything before death, uh, so treatment like during their time at the hospital, I can provide sort of emotional support, discussions around quality of life and end of life, and even help them communicate uh, their needs with our veterinary staff. So I'm very much here to support the human components of veterinary medicine, and also in a larger sense, the human animal bond. And the way that looks um, after death is I actually I do grief counseling uh, services for our clients so that, you know, they have somebody to talk to and support them through their loss. Yeah. Is that relatively new to have to have that sort of uh, service available for those who are who are going through not just both medical 
treatment and, or veterinary treatment as well as loss? That's a really good question. Um, so in a way, yes, I would say it's still pretty niche. It's actually vet social work as a discipline has actually probably been around, ooh, I don't know, the past 30, maybe 40 years. Um, one of the, I guess, sort of the origin of this profession and, and introducing like social services and mental health support into environments like veterinary hospitals actually started at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Uh, they have a big a big vet program, and there was a social worker uh, out of that school, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Strand, who saw the need actually for support for our veterinary professionals, and that kind of morphed into this this bigger thing of how do we support the human animal bond, and how do we you know recognize that our animals are actually a part of family systems. Um, in the in the more recent sense, I would say. Uh, so I've actually been doing this since 2017. I was at a different hospital in downtown Toronto for three years doing this. But mm. ever since the pandemic, the growth of this field, and I don't know if that's because so many people brought uh, animals into their home during the pandemic, but the, the growth of this field has like just been exponential. So we're seeing a lot more people occupying these spaces, mainly in the United States, but certainly in Canada and actually internationally as well. So it's it's getting bigger, but yeah, it's it's relatively new as far as social work uh, professions go. Tell me a bit about about what um, about what sort of the people who come to see you. What what it is? I, mean, I suppose it's people from all walks of life suffering through all yeah. senses of loss, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, the the demographic I see is is pretty huge. You know, anywhere from uh, people with children um, all the way to, you know, uh, more uh, elderly folks. And um, all of them at, have different understandings of grief and loss. Some of them, it's their first companion animal they've lost or that they have. And uh, some have lost many before, but this one is their heart animal, so to speak, the one that um, has been really tough. So I see people at all kind of different levels of, of their experience with pet loss and pet illness. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I do a lot of conversations actually before death around quality of life and end of life, because euthanasia is obviously a really big part of uh, veterinary medicine. It's a newer concept of medically assisted death in, in human medicine. Uh, but, you know, we've always talked about it in vet med. So I actually do a lot of work around um, helping people understand that, why it's an option and, um, you know, if it's an option for them, how to kind of walk it walk them and their families through it. So yeah. a lot of the before work um, and as, as well as after just, you know, dealing with the loss and where it leaves, leaves people. Maybe, maybe what are some of the factors that play into the depth of that sense of loss? Because, you know, I know even within mm. my own family, there have been times where a pet has passed and a companion has passed and it has been, it's been difficult. And there are other times where it's been truly heartbreaking and, and it's been, you know, it, it, I think my father lost a pet not long ago and the depth of his grief was, was to me surprising. I mean, he's a bit older now. I think he spent a lot of time with this particular, particular dog. They were really close. You know, there are a lot of things I think that play into the depth of the sense of loss. Yeah. Um, it's so true. So I would say, I mean, context is everything. And I think that's true for any loss. Um, grief is such a unique and personal experience. And I often find that grief really mirrors the relationship that we had, right? So um, for people and their companion animals, um, you know, there's a number of different factors. I guess I, I will say this just to speak more generally to it and about some of the things that I see a lot and, and why this loss kind of runs so deep for people, so to speak. Um, one of 
one of the big things to know about uh, the loss of a pet is that it falls under something we actually call a disenfranchised grief. Um, so, you know, that means a grief that's not always socially validated or understood by those around us. Uh, and it can be quite isolating in that sense. So, like, as an example, sometimes people hear things like, oh, you know, well, it was just a dog. Can't you get another? Or right. I can't believe you, you know, spent all that money on your dog's health care. Um, you know, or, or it's been a week. Why are you still upset about it? Right. So sometimes we find that the social circle around us doesn't always understand why we're so heartbroken. And as a result, we don't always understand why we're so heartbroken. So that's actually a really huge piece of what I deal with. Um, you know, uh, so, so I, I'd say that's like a pretty massive factor. Right. Trying to validate the grief, right? Trying to explain that you do yes. understand what it is the person's going through. Oh, validating is everything. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's, it's, um, it's a big, big piece of what I do. And just, you know, letting people know that it's okay to feel as sad as you do. I mean, when you think about the human-animal bond, um, something that's so different about it than the way we bond with other people is that it's one of the only relationships we characterize as very unconditional and unspoken. So here you are, you know, having a deep, meaningful relationship with a, a species that's, you know, not human and doesn't even speak our language, yet we seem to know them so well and they know us. It's a very uh, intuitive bond. And, uh, you know, not everybody always understands that, but it certainly doesn't mean it's any less of a loss than, than any other type of, of death or grief. Sarah Bernardi is with us. She's a veterinary social worker with the University of Guelph. We're talking about bereavement and pets, bereavement and companions. You may have seen John Stewart's video from this week on Monday. He closed out his daily show on Monday uh, by talking about the loss of his dog, Dipper. They had adopted 13, some 12, 13 years ago, and uh, it was Dipper's time. He said he was tired, and he, the words he used was Dipper was ready and I wasn't. Um, Sarah, there must be ways of, of approaching the grief, and I suppose burying it or ignoring it or pretending it's not happening is probably, probably one thing you don't want to do, and that's true of all grief. But what are some of the healthy ways to try to cope with, with what can be a really devastating loss? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing to know, and once again, this applies to every grief, is that grief is not a problem to be fixed or solved. You know, I don't know that we ever stop grieving the beings that we love, and that includes our companion animals. Of course, we'd always rather have them with us as opposed to not. Um, but some of the ways that you can learn to walk through this grief uh, includes, I mean, something we actually talked about earlier, validation, mm -hmm. I think is actually a really Im important piece of this. So, um, you know, surrounding yourself with the people that, you know, you know, have an understanding and, and won't judge you or invalidate those feelings of loss can be really important. Um, so in other words, having a support circle, and I think generally we actually find that support a lot in people who have actually gone through a similar loss that we have, right? Maybe they, they are, um, they have lost an animal before, or they do have um, their own pet now. Um, so, you know, surrounding yourself with support. I also think that, you know, to kind of um, piggyback off that point, talked a little bit about uh, validation and, mm -hmm. and sharing stories. Um, you know, I think honoring memories is a really important piece of this. Uh, for, for a lot of people, a lot of healing comes with, um, you know, uh, memorialization, right? So whether it's maybe it's holding a little celebration of life, but finding ways to acknowledge that that grief is real and it's valid. Right. I guess John Stewart did that by paying tribute to his dog on his show, right? I mean, that was essentially exactly what he was doing. I mean, yeah, that was actually huge. And it was a it was a really great example of, um, you know, somebody who really 
uh, put their authentic feelings out there and such a public eye. And I'm actually, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people felt comfort from that. Because once again, if we go back to that idea that this grief is disenfranchised, you know, our our social circles are a little smaller, we're feeling a little more isolated, um, you know, sharing experiences can be a really important, you know, uh, I guess, safe space for people. Right. Is there, is there anything that you recommend that people do? I know you deal with people too who, who have animals going through veterinary care. Is there anything that people can do to sort of, I don't want to use the word brace themselves, but you know, sometimes you know when, when a pet that you have is getting older and you, you can sort of see the end is coming. And I know how difficult that is. And sometimes it's just easier to ignore, but is there anything you should do in advance to sort of prepare yourself for the loss? I mean, yeah, I think as much as you can prepare yourself, it's recognize that it's always going to be hard. You know, it's never easy to say goodbye. Um, what I suggest to people is is recognizing a couple things. One is that anticipatory grief is a very real thing. So the idea that we kind of feel like we're going through the motions of grief before a death even happens. Um, so just, you know, being aware of those feelings. Um, the other piece is, I, I talked a little bit about earlier how one of the kind of unique pieces of vet med is that uh, euthanasia is often a, a big part of the mm -hmm. conversation. Um, so if you are unfamiliar with euthanasia or end of life and palliative care when it comes to animals, you know, open up that conversation with your veterinary professional, even if you're not there yet. I know it can feel a little bit morbid to talk about these things, but um, if we kind of have a general plan about how we want to say goodbye, what we can expect from that process, it does take one more thing off of our plates when we maybe get to that point. Yeah. And oftentimes, and you've mentioned it already, people who don't quite understand the grief or who don't quite identify with the grief will say, well, just get a new pet, like get another one, right? Um, I suppose for each individual, that decision depends on time and when it feels yeah. right. Absolutely. It's so, it's so unique to everyone. I mean, I, I, I see, uh, you know, different people doing different things all the time. I, I just like to give sort of this uh, general guidance out there. If, if you're confused or unsure about what the right time is to get a, a you know another companion animal just recognize this right the act of bringing another animal into your home is not about replacing the one that you had right we all know that they have their own personalities um you know each each companion we have is unique and we will never forget them and there's only ever going to be one of them uh, so i don't look at it as replacing ever but rather you have a lot of love to give and if you and your household are, are feeling ready, then that means you're ready. Sarah, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. As I was mentioning, this is something that had been speculated about and talked about for years now. And finally today, newly released documents pointed some light at what exactly happened to two scientists, a husband and wife, Chinese scientists, at a high-security laboratory um, in Winnipeg. They were escorted out in 2019 and then fired in 2021. Well, today, uh, it turns out that after security reviews found they had failed to protect sensitive assets and information, that's why all that happened, uh, that ensued. So there are more than 600 pages made public today after a special all-party review of the records. Health Minister Mark Holland says the documents reveal a lack of adherence to security protocols at the lab under the Pub Public Health Agency of Canada. And I can tell you that in my read of the documents, um, in, and I think back to 2019, uh, that there was the, the lax, uh, the lax uh, adherence uh, was concerning, um, but that it was uh, on the aggregate, uh, when you take a look at it, um, the professionals who, yes, could have and should have done better, 
Uh, but I don't think it rises to the to the point of being of, of firing them. Right. Uh, so what did they do? Uh, Ching Guo Chiu and her husband, Kadeng Chung, uh, again, were escorted at Winnipeg's National Microbiology Laboratory in July 2019, fired in January 2021. Now, just to put this into context, that lab is Canada's only level four laboratory designed to deal safely with deadly contagious germs such as the Ebola virus, which Dr. Chiu had worked with. Um, it turns out that both of them had provided confidential scientific information to China and were fired because there was a realistic and credible threat to Canada's economic security. They'd also engaged in clandestine meetings with Chinese officials. Uh, that all according to documents tabled in the House of Commons today. And the CSIS investigators concluded that Chiu's overriding faith in the good intentions of other scientists made her susceptible to the influence or to influence by a foreign state that could result in information or materials leaving the laboratory that could harm national security or the health of individuals. So we get a better idea that, you know, there was there was fire where, where we saw smoke, but we just got a clearer idea of what happened today. Um, Health Minister Mark Collins says national secrets were not compromised. At no time. Uh, did national secrets or did, uh, or did information that threatened the security of Canada leave or enter the lab? One of the big questions here all along, though, is why wasn't why weren't they just up front with this from the get go? Because what's happened in the interim and nature abhors a vacuum is that all kinds of speculation has come into play since this unfolded in 2019, then again in 2021. So why not just release this information? Because there are all sorts of excuses as to why they wouldn't do it. And once the information was released, redacted, obviously, in parts, it's pretty straightforward stuff. Someone who's been following this story from the get-go, even earlier, is Justin Ling. He's a freelance investigative journalist. You can find his work on Substack at the Bug-Eyed and Shameless newsletter. It's excellent. Justin, thank you for your time. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Uh, there was certainly a lot of uh, speculation surrounding what might these what these documents might contain. You've looked into the story a lot. What did we learn today? I mean, we learned a lot. We, we learned what the actual basis of the complaint was, which has been so long coming. Like, I, just to give you a sense of this, I have been working on this story now for upwards of five years, since before COVID-19 even hit, since before these two scientists were even, I was working on their work before they were actually removed from the lab. So I have been actually fixated on what's actually been going on here for years now and the government has been and the government at CSIS and the public health agency and the national microbiology lab in Winnipeg they have all been secretive on the border of deceptive about what's actually happened here and now that we finally have all of the documents in front of us now that we actually have the full explanation of what happened it's infuriating that they could not have told this to us four years ago, even three years ago, two years ago, that it took this long and this much fighting to get just basic questions answered about what happened should make us really honestly angry and should make us question why the government seems so unwilling to trust us with, with basic information like this. I mean, because there were any number, and you've listed them in, in, in articles, there have been any number of reasons put forth that, that they simply couldn't talk about this, right? It was privacy, it was security, I mean, it was any number of things. And here we actually have the explanation. So why would they have held on to this for so long without sharing it? Because at the same time, it sort of, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So in came the speculation. Um, yeah. And we've sort of been treated to many years now of this kind of huge story without ever really knowing what had happened. 
Yeah, so obviously we're getting to the details of what this actually went down in a second, but you know, all we knew for for years was that these two scientists, uh, you know, both of whom worked at the, probably the most prestigious government-run lab in the country, they were escorted out of the lab by the RCMP. We knew there were questions swirling about some of their research students who came from China. We knew there was questions about their connections uh, to Chinese researchers, including a, a Chinese uh, research lab linked to the uh, People's Liberation Army, the main uh, military force in, in China. Uh, we knew there was questions about shipments of Ebola. And that was kind of it. There was these questions. There was no actual right. accusations on the table. Um, for years, the government has sort of intoned that criminal charges could be coming. Uh, we actually didn't even know if they were fired from their jobs for quite some time. We know now, looking through these documents, that criminal charges were never really on the table and there was no grounds for them, as best I can tell. Uh, we know that they were removed from their jobs and went through a, a, a grievance, a union-led process um, that ended in 2020, and that this case has been largely shut since then. If I had to tell you why the government was so secretive about this, it probably had nothing to do uh, with these two researchers. It probably had nothing to do with the process itself. I can tell you that probably the biggest thing is that they didn't want to contribute to conspiracy theories around the origins of COVID-19, because there are a couple mentions in these documents. There's a couple references in here to some of the work being done at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where mm -hmm. some people believe COVID-19 emerged from. I can tell you that reading through these documents, nothing in here leads, leads any credence to the idea that COVID-19 was a lab leak or that it was intentionally designed. You can believe those theories all you want, but nothing in these documents should should contribute to your belief in that theory whatsoever. So I think it was probably a case of, frankly, a paternalistic attitude of what the public can handle in terms of the truth. And I think that probably fed to this kind of resistance to releasing them. But now that we finally got through the process, the appropriate things have been redacted because, you know, for privacy, for national security reasons, some things had to be redacted. But now that we have all the documents, it's really frustrating that the government wouldn't trust the public, wouldn't trust journalists, wouldn't trust parliament with these documents until now, until all of this litigation, all of this fighting, all of these political compromises had to happen. So ultimately, why did Dr. Ching Guo Chiu and Kudling Chang, why were they escorted out by the RCMP back in July of 2019? Yeah, so... It's a long saga uh, with right. a lot of, of, of trading accusations, but the, the long and short of it is they were originally removed because there were concerns uh, about some of their visitors who had been brought into the lab and who were allowed to kind of move about. Uh, there were concerns about material being physically removed from the lab. Um, there were concerns about security protocols not being followed. There were concerns about potentially intellectual property being uh, transferred out of the country. And what's interesting is that in the initial investigation, a lot of those accusations, a lot of those allegations didn't end up being borne out. Some of them did, but by and large, there was an initial administrative investigation um, that found that actually in one case, there were vials being removed that led to some concern. In fact, they were empty vials. They were clean. Someone just needed some extra vials in another part of the lab and they were being removed for totally innocuous purposes. So there was a whole bunch of this, this, this smoke that turned out to be nothing, right? But then when the investigation kind of continues on, as it does, CSIS gets involved and CSIS starts probing the idea that both of these researchers, but in particular, Dr. Chu, 
had connections to research facilities in China that may have gone into the realm of inappropriate. And over the course of an initial investigation, Dr. Chu basically denies uh, most of those connections, uh, basically says that, you know, there is a collaboration that goes on between her and and uh, at least two different labs in China. But all of that collaboration is above board. All of it is signed off on. She sort of admits that she's not great at following the, every letter of the law, right? And in, in terms of the rules that govern how she's supposed to operate in this lab, she doesn't like paperwork. She considers some of these, um, these regulations superfluous and hi- a hindrance to her scientific work. I think it's pretty clear that she's concerned about biosafety and biosecurity. It's not like she's totally reckless. But when it comes to paperwork, intellectual property, eh, it's not really her thing. And again, I, I can tell you that that is something that came up in multiple interviews with former her former colleagues. So anyway, she does this interview, but CSIS keeps digging. And what they discover is more in-depth connections than she initially let on. They find that she has personal connections to several kind of researchers that do kind of dual-use work, which means that they do work that is sort of in the public health realm, but that could also have a military application. Um, They discover that she has a bank account in China that she didn't disclose. Um, They discover that some of the researchers who work for her and Dr. Cheng um, actually had connections to that that military-linked lab as well. And when they go back to her and sort of put all of these things in front of her, she sort of dances around a bit. She obfuscates a little bit. She admits to some of it. She sort of tries to explain away other bits. And in this whole kind of unfurling, um, it just becomes really clear that the connection between these two researchers and their Chinese counterparts is much more in-depth than they let on. And while some of the research was signed off on and, and, and reported to the public health agency and the National Microbiology Lab where they worked, much of it wasn't. You know, they did trips to the Wuhan Institute of Virology without disclosing it to those who will <laughs> undoubtedly see evidence that um, this is part of a plot to create a bioweapon. She was actually, or, you know, that, that led to a lab leak. She was actually giving biosafety and biosecurity seminars, teaching these chi- her Chinese counterparts how to do better, how to improve biosafety and biosecurity in that lab. I thought that was interesting. But nevertheless, you know, she she was doing a lot of this collaboration without disclosing it. And it looked like she was set up, event, whether or not she actually received it or whether it was still hypothetical, to receive grant money from the Chinese government for her work and that she may have done um, actual you know, physical collaborations, whether in person or remotely, with several Chinese universities. Um, so all of this to say, uh, in the context where we are now uh, with Canada's relationship with China and with the concerns about uh, their effort to steal intellectual property and to co-opt talent in Canada, uh, CSIS made the recommendation to remove their security clearance. And the Public Health Agency of Canada told them that their security clearance was contingent on them having a job or their, their job was contingent on them having security clearance and fired them in 2020. And and that's basically the story. That's it. And, right? yeah. and all of this sort of speculation... All these accusations that have, have flung around um, have been largely disconnected from these facts. Uh, these are the facts that are on the table. But I'm really glad that this is finally out there. This is finally on the table that we know what we're talking about now. So we can have a real conversation instead of sort of shadow boxing all of these theories. Justin Ling is a freelance investigative journalist. You can find his work uh, at the Bug-Eyed and Shameless newsletter on Substack. We're talking about the 
ongoing saga of these two Chinese scientists who were removed by the RCMP from Winnipeg's highly secretive National Microbiology Lab in July of 2019, then fired in 2021. Today, it was revealed through documents that had been talked about and speculated about for years now that they were fired after security reviews found that they had failed to protect sensitive assets and information, that Dr. Chiu's, Chen Guoqiu's connections to China were perhaps far closer than she had ever admitted or ever let on. Justin, I guess the moral here is that obviously they were working within a very secretive or very high security um, environment at a time when Canada's relationship with China was changing very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a conversation to be had about the actual damage that they're alleged to have done, which we can talk about in a second. But I don't think in this conversation we've ever focused on the benefit they were providing, right? Because the benefit they were providing was actually being recognized by their bosses and by the federal government, right? You know, think back to before the two Michaels were arrested. The Canadian government was actually prioritizing uh, research collaboration with the Chinese government, including with uh, labs that may have had links or affiliations uh, with the People's Liberation Army. Um, the Canadian government thought of it as a benefit that we had Chinese Canadians who had strong ties in China because the the Canadian government at a time when Donald Trump um, was leading the US and Europe was in sort of disarray, China uh, Canada considered it a priority to deepen relations with China in order to take advantage of, of the sort of rising second global power. Researchers like Dr. Chu were a part of that strategy. It was considered a net positive that she was doing this work. You know, I have the emails. I think many of the emails are included in this in this document uh, that were published to the House of Commons. I have emails where Dr. Chu is talking about shipments of viruses that are going to be sent back and forth between the lab in China and the lab in Winnipeg. And her bosses were excited about this because it meant deepening collaboration with labs right. that were doing cutting-edge research that had more money than the Canadian labs did, right? So... That was the reality we were at then. Now, you can say that was naive and you'd be right. You know, I've written in the past about how there was this sort of toxic optimism that was plaguing the Canadian government at the time. The Canadian government didn't want to accept that the Chinese government doesn't care about collaboration. It cares much more about information extraction, right? You know, I, there was a lot of really good warnings, some of them coming from CSIS, that Beijing was really interested not in forging partnerships with Chinese Canadians, but uh, actually using them as, as sources of information to exfiltrate proprietary information from Canada. And the Canadian right. government didn't care, right? They were, they were blithe to that threat. It wasn't until the abduction of the two Michaels that a light switch flipped and suddenly the Canadian government was alive to all these concerns. And that bleeds through in this investigation. I think if the two Michaels had never, you know, let's imagine a different reality where the two Michaels had never been abducted, where things had gone differently and where Canada was still trying to deepen uh, relations with China. Would uh, Dr. Chu and Dr. Chang have been vilified? Would they have been removed from their jobs? Would their clearance have been revoked in that world? I'm not positive they would have. I, I, certainly there are things here uh, that are beyond the pale. Uh, but there are things here I think that actually could have been fixed by maybe a probationary period, by a stern talking to, by better oversight. I don't think that's impossible. If you actually look, because there, there's parts here where there, there are interviews with the two doctors, there are emails sent by the two, from the two doctors uh, back to the investigators, and they keep underlining. We didn't have training on this stuff. We were right. never warned about these things. Both of them said, listen, 
listen, we love Canada. We don't want to work for the Chinese government, right? We thought we were doing something good for humanity. We thought we were working with like-minded scientists. Yes, in a different country, but we didn't care about the politics of it. It never enters our mind. Right. At one point, uh, Dr. Chu basically says, I had to learn what the word, what the acronym NATO meant recently, right? So there's a level of naivety here on their part. There is a level of naivete on the Canadian government's part, but there is a level of, of you know, uh, moving the goalposts, I think, at least from the perspective of these two researchers, where they feel like they were doing they were fulfilling a mission. They were given by their bosses, by the government. And the mission changed very suddenly and very abruptly. And they were caught in the lurch. And I think yeah. there's kind of something tragic about that. But there's also something tragic about the naivete that governed the Trudeau administration over those years as well. Yeah. I mean, the they didn't care about the politics, but all of a sudden the politics cared a lot about them. Justin, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. U.S. President Joe Biden, by the way, underwent his annual physical today. Apparently, he's in pretty good shape. It comes a day after, though, a gut check for the president in the Michigan primary yesterday. Uh, as the incumbent, there is virtually no challenge to Biden, once again, becoming the Democratic nominee for president in November. It looks very likely or almost obvious that, that Donald Trump will be his opponent yet again. But Michigan threw up a problem that could back, come back to haunt Biden in one of the key swing states uh, that will be up for grabs in eight months' time. He received 81% support, but more than 100,000 voters, or 13%, chose something called uncommitted. The opposition came over the president's support for Israel and made clear that he faces a pretty big battle for his own coalition and political base that he must win if he's to defeat the likely Republican nominee, Donald Trump. In November, again, the voter uprising was rooted largely but not exclusively among Arab Americans. Michigan has the largest uh, Arab American population in America. Uh, to the president's approach to the Gaza war, they want an immediate ceasefire in the region. Um, and they're not happy with what they're seeing from the White House as far as its approach to Gaza has been so far. Joining me now is David Dulio. He's a distinguished professor of political science and director of the Center for Civic Engagement at Oakland University in Michigan. David, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. So a lot of eyes, I mean, there was no doubt that Joe Biden was going to win this uh, handedly, but you, a lot of eyes on the uncommitted and uh, a campaign to try to get as many people to cast a protest vote uh, on the Democratic side. What was your assessment of how it all, all wound up yesterday? Uh, well, uh, that's the million dollar question. I right. think I'm struggling because it's kind of a meh. Right. <laughs> I mean, um, and and I, I know that that's probably unsatisfactory, but that's uh, or disappointing. But but th I think that's the real outcome, right? I mean, the the folks that are downplaying this result are focused on the fact that uncommitted only got thirteen percent, right? Thirteen and a half, right? Which isn't um, out of line with what Barack Obama got in twenty twelve. Or I should say what was cast against Barack Obama in 2012 uh, when he was running for re-election. And at the same time, you know, you look at the 100,000 vote number, and that to me seems pretty significant. That's, you know, that's a lot of people coming out and saying, no, Mr. President, we don't like your policy, um, in this Israel Hamas war. And, and, you know the 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 two camps of reactions here in the states in the aftermath seem to be those who are saying uh oh 13% no big deal 
Biden can go on as, uh, you know, as as he has been. And then there's those that are saying, mainly from the right, you know, that, oh, Biden's done. Well, neither of those is correct, right? I mean, it's somewhere in the middle. It's something that the the Biden campaign, I think, needs to pay attention to uh, simply because of uh, the fact that Michigan is a state that is so electorally competitive at the presidential level. It has been the last two times around. And it's not this one constituency that can sink a Biden bid in Michigan, but this one combined with a couple others and he's in trouble. Yeah. I mean, if we were talking about California, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? I mean, it's just the, the margins are so slim. There are so few truly competitive states out there. Michigan is one of them. I mean, I think Trump won by 10,000, but Biden won by about 115. So if you're talking about 100,000 voters who may or may not have voted Democrat last time saying, we don't like your policies and we're thinking twice about this, that would raise some red flags, I would think. I, it, it sure would seem so to me as well. And And again, it's not that these hundred thousand people are going to automatically flip and go to Trump, right? That's, that's unrealistic. Yeah. Unlikely. But, you know, if a third of them decide to stay home and not vote at all, well, that's almost as bad as a vote for Trump. Right. And, And that's where you get into, um, the, the combination of factors that, are dangerous territory for the White House, right? If you get, say, a third of those 100,000, and then, you know, if he suffers some additional losses um, among union workers uh, because, Trump, because Trump has some strength there, and then maybe the, the younger voters aren't as jazzed up as, or as enthusiastic as they used to be about Biden. And there's 150,000 votes right there, right? I mean, yeah. it's... It's it's not the the math is not that hard. It's a fragile it's a fragile coalition. Tell me a bit about this campaign on the uncommitted side for for a Canadian audience looking. I mean, what what the question one always asks when looking at it is, okay, you disagree with President Biden's policies on the war in Gaza, or at least in anything that's happened since October the 7th has been a big check mark against or a big x against the current president but the alternative doesn't seem much more appealing if you're if you're um you know an, an arab american in michigan i think that that's right and and you know the the where do those voters go is the question right i mean and if if and this is such a different issue for these folks right because it is such a personal emotional issue that you know it's Oftentimes in the states, we hear people say that they're going to hold their nose and vote for the, you know, the uh, lesser of two evils. Right? I, I'm not sure for these voters that that exists. I mean, I'm I'm trying to put myself in their shoes, and I obviously can't. But you know, I could see where they would say, "Look, I, I can't vote for either of these individuals." So again, maybe they stay home. Maybe they try to find a third party candidate that that they could support, but. I, I think it's um, I think the impact of of this uncommitted effort, number one, it's not going to stop. I think they got enough votes and and the the folks that are behind it are are committed, including Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, 
Um, her sister has played a, an integral part in this, the mayor of Dearborn, right? The, these folks are not going away. They're going to continue this push. Um, and, and I think that that's the real question now moving forward, right, is, okay, you got 100,000 votes. What is that going to mean in the future? I, I tend to think that they're not going to stop pressing the White House. And is that, but the question is, okay, does that lead to policy change um, in on this issue? And and I've, I'm struggling to find a, a, a scenario where it does lead to some significant shift, frankly, just because I think President Biden is a true supporter of the the state of Israel, right? And and nobody wants to see the the casualties and deaths that are that are, are occurring. But I think that's Biden's, that's where he is. In addition, you know, if he did shift, he might alienate more people on the other side of that issue. And and that now he's in real trouble. So, you know, it's he's he's in a bit of a pickle. Yeah. And, and it's and it's hard to see where the comp I mean, I think this is an issue that that a lot of people are having around this war. And it's certainly playing out within the Democratic Party. Uh, just the, where did the, the the uncommitted was was not just, um, you know, obviously, Michigan has a, a large Arab American population, but it wasn't just that there were progressives as well. This is sort of a fight that's being played out in other parts of the country as well within the Democratic Party. And I think that that's that's a, a really good point is in the not even day since we've had these results. The uh, I've read some stories today saying there are some other communities or some other activists that are going to try and and replicate this in in upcoming primaries. And and I think that that's a that's an aggressive thing to try to try to do because it works here because there are leaders of that who connect with a, a, a clear constituency. You know, it's it. You know, Michigan has got that. It's got the highest concentration of of Arab American voters in the country. Um, maybe you know, Minnesota has got some uh, some similar constituencies, but um, you know, you, you struggle to find a lot of votes that could that could replicate the the results here in Michigan. David Dulio is a distinguished professor of political science and director of the Center for Civic Engagement at Oakland University in Michigan. We're talking about the results of yesterday's primaries. Uh, a bit of a gut check for Joe Biden. He did win handedly, 81% of the vote there, but more than 100,000 people came out and voted uncommitted, just 13%. But this was seen as sort of a backlash against, uh, the, against the White House's policies right now towards Israel and Gaza, large um, Arab-American population, obviously the largest in, in Michigan. And uh, they're not happy with the White House's policies policies on this war and they want to see change. And that's where the pressure was coming from. Uh, David, on the other side, once again, I mean, I think Donald Trump had a successful night. He's obviously clearly on his way to the Republican nomination, as many had been talking about for weeks now. But he, too, has some red flags there. I mean, Nikki Haley did fairly well. Trump was below 70 percent and he was below his polling numbers. Yeah. And before we get to the GOP side, one one last point about the the uh, Democratic side of this, you know, the the folks that have been pushing this uncommitted vote as you said very very well the they're looking for this change in policy and, and it, it's interesting to me to think about what that would look like right because it's not up to joe biden if no. there's a fire right <laughs> no. i mean so you know yeah, he, that's the interesting part i mean they're talking it's a single issue fight over something that's not really up to the white house right right i mean so so even if he were to rhetorically and he has started to do that right i mean there's 
apparently there's, um, although it may have just fallen apart, right? There's these conversations that are happening or negotiations in Paris between some some states. Um, but again, it, it's not like he can snap his fingers and give them what they want. I suppose you know we could see we could see a shift in the aid that Israel is getting, um, but even that is that enough to to give these folks what they're what they're looking for? And and I'm just not sure I see a path that that makes them happy, um, which is just makes it even more complex and more difficult for the for the White House on the on the Republican side. Yeah, I think there's 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 red flags for both candidates, you know, and, and we haven't even gotten into a number of them on the, on the Biden side, but for Trump, you know, yeah, he only got, he cracked 60%. Um, that's darn near 40% who of Republicans who want somebody else. And, you know, just like there's divisions on the, in the democratic party, uh, on this particular issue of, of the Israel Gaza war on the Republican side, those divisions are also present, but I think they're much broader Right. I mean, I think that that there's breadth to the Republican division and there's depth to this particular Democratic division. And, you know, there are clearly many, many Republicans who are interested in moving on from Donald Trump. Uh, But at the same time, his supporters are so incredibly loyal that that they are uh, excited and enthusiastic uh, about voting for him. I suppose when you add it all up, what we saw yesterday is a reminder that although both candidates, uh, both leading candidates, and presumably the two who will be facing off again come November, did very well in Michigan by, by you know, by all comparisons yesterday, that it's going to be a tight race come November. And it's it's still very much a purple state. Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, uh, I, I wrote a, um, a piece a couple a month or so ago for an outlet here in Michigan and it was it was all about get ready, Michigan, because the ads are coming. <laughs> yeah. And we are a we are a very competitive uh, state electorally. 50-50. I mean, uh, yes, you can have a uh, an outcome here or there that that uh, is by a greater margins, but it's it's going to be a really narrow victory for whoever carries the state. And and that just means that the candidates are going to be here a lot. The surrog- their surrogates are going to be here a lot, and millions upon millions of dollars are going to be spent uh, here in Michigan. And and we're about to get inundated with political ads. David, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. It was fun. 